Good morning. Our scripture passage this morning is from Psalms 103, 6 through 19. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Ashley, so much for reading God's Word for us, and uh, it is good to be here. Last week I was here, I was present, I got to do announcements for Pastor Johnny as he uh, preached from God's Word for us, but uh, man, I didn't, November was strange, I didn't preach once in November, and it's like I was writing a sermon this week, and I was like, I forgot how to do this, um, but uh, I'm glad to be here because I love, love, love preaching God's Word. Uh, and if you engaged with the formed.life at all this week, you might be a little confused right now, uh, and if you followed along in the companion journal uh, this week, you also might be a little confused right now because Ashley just read from Psalm 103 and not Psalm 72, uh, which was uh, the passage that we were preparing for in the midst of the form.life. Uh, we, we are out of order a little bit here at Shawnee. Uh, Pastor Nathan is preaching Psalm 72 at Olathe this morning, and then he's going to come here next week and do Psalm 72, and I am going to do Psalm 103 at Olathe. So uh, right after I finally get back to hanging out with you all at Shawnee, uh, preaching at Shawnee, next week I, I, I won't be preaching here. So uh, I'm going to do this sermon there, and Nathan will do that sermon here. Here. Uh, so hopefully you're tracking with all that. And this is a great reminder that the form.life, that is a, a web address. So it's www.theformed.life. And it is a remarkable uh, companion to put alongside of what we're doing on uh, Sunday mornings. And then this journal, which you can pick up at the hello wall, is a remarkable companion to that companion. So the journal is not the form.life. It's a companion journal, but it does allow you to engage and prepare for the Sunday morning sermon. So I would encourage you uh, to do that. And would encourage all of us now uh, to uh, enter into a time of prayer as we ask uh, for God's help to understand what He might have for us in Psalm 103. And so please bow your heads and pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you um, for your word, for uh, all of the book of the Psalms, which is a joy to get to engage and to enter into here uh, during this month, during December, during Advent. Um, I pray, Father, that as we look at this extraordinary chapter, 
uh, from your word, one of the most beloved psalms, that we would uh, not lose ourselves in the familiarity of it, if it is familiar to us, Lord, um, but that it would be for each and every one of us, no matter how many times we've engaged it or haven't engaged it, it would fall upon our ears and our hearts and our souls and our minds afresh and would transform our lives uh, so that we might uh, walk out of this place better equipped um, and better and even more eager uh, to live a life that is uh, more and more in the image of your son, Jesus. So we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, there's a new Christmas movie that's out on Apple TV, and listen, I am a, I'm a bit of a sucker for Will Ferrell. Uh, I hope I'm not the only one. Uh, so I watched it this week. It's called Spirited, and it's a modern, updated retelling. Has anybody else watched it yet? It's, uh, they've, okay, a couple people have. So it's a modern, updated retelling of Charles Dickens' a classic novella, A Christmas Carol. And what I find really interesting about Spirited is that the central tension of the movie pivots around a word that has fallen out of favor in our modern moment. So honestly, the the central question and driving tension of this movie is about redemption. Redemption. Which again, is not a word that I think we hear very often in the West in 2022. Redemption. We don't hear people talk about that very much these days, do we? Now, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but again, the the driving tension is this question of whether or not there might be some people who are, quote, unredeemable. Are there some people that are unredeemable? Now, you may have caught or maybe you didn't know that Spirited's a musical, which actually, to be honest, they mostly pull off, uh, and one of the songs is titled just that. It's this theme and this question that I find so fascinating uh, that a modern big-budget movie is trying to answer. Is it true that some of us are unredeemable? And here we just got—we just got a short clip. So let's let's go ahead and watch this. Spent every waking minute taking all that I could take. Never stopped to reckon with the ruin in my wake. With all the bridges that I burned. The wounds I didn't mend, all the worth I thought I earned, it turned worthless in the end. Uh, what's going on? What was it for? Well, is it possible I'm meant for something more? Am I forever unredeemable? Can I be a man who breaks? From a lifetime of mistakes Can my worst be left behind? And do I deserve to find A kind of love that I can lean on Every day But will I learn I have to stay I mean, it's interesting, right? And, and, and did you catch sort of what he's driving at there? Here is the verse that really stood out to me from this number in the musical. Am I forever unredeemable? Can I be the man who breaks from a lifetime of mistakes? Can my worst be left behind? And, and do I deserve to find the kind of love that I could lean on every day? Or will I learn that I have to stay unredeemable? Which is such an interesting question, isn't it? An interesting question because I think we've probably all asked some version of that question in our lives. 
I mean, maybe that's the way to say it. This is an interesting question to me because I find that this is a deeply relatable question. Isn't it? I mean, listen, faced with our worst moments, I think we all have thought and believed some version of this. I'm, I'm too far gone. I've screwed up too much. I've made too many mistakes. I'm beyond saving. I'm, I'm unredeemable. I mean, I know I've been there. What about you? Which, that's a little bit of a depressing place to admit that we've been, isn't it? It's a little bit of a dark place to be. So how about we allow the light of Psalm 103 verse 4a to shine in just a bit. The whole of Psalm 103 is our text for this morning. It's a magnificent psalm, and we're only going to be able to scratch the very surface of it in our time together. But I want to start by zeroing in on one particular phrase and one particular verse because of how it connects with the driving question that we discovered in this movie, Spirited. Am I unredeemable? And here's how Psalm 103 verse 4a would speak in and seek to answer that question. Here it is, church. Listen, the Lord, the Lord redeems me from death. The Lord redeems me from death. The good news that's present in Psalm 103 verse 4a is that redemption is possible. Redemption is possible or to more directly answer the question that we found in the movie Spirited, the good news is that no one is unredeemable. The good news is that no one, no one is unredeemable. Now, this is also essentially the answer that the movie ends up arriving at, complete with a big finishing music number that contains a lot of tap dancing. I won't do any of that for you this morning. You're welcome. So because the movie answers the driving question in the same way that Psalm 103 answers the driving question, I think we ought to press a little bit deeper. I believe that we should ask by way of follow-up, why is it true that no one is unredeemable? Why is it true that no one is unredeemable, and how is it true? Why and how? Why is it true that no one is unredeemable, and how? How is it true that no one is unredeemable? And you probably won't be surprised to learn that despite the initial connection between Spirited, remember a big budget movie made by Apple, and Psalm 103 regarding this broad theme of redemption, when it comes to these follow-up questions of why no one is unredeemable and how no one is unredeemable, there's quite a bit of divergence and difference, and we're going to anchor ourselves not in the movie Spirited this morning, but we're going to anchor ourselves in Psalm 103, and we're going to take a journey to discover together why and how it's true that no one is unredeemable. So first, according to Psalm 103, redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it. Redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it. King David is the author of Psalm 103, and I, I love this. He starts off this beautiful poem by giving his soul a pep talk. That's what he's doing in the first couple of verses. Let's look back together at verses 1 and 2. Those were part of our call to worship this morning as chance led us into the worship service. Those verses read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Friends, we must be honest this morning. How easily do we forget God? How quickly do we neglect the truthful recognition of all that God has given us? How often and regularly do our hearts and souls bend blessings and honor and thanksgiving 
in directions other than God. How often do we do that? How regularly do we do that? How quickly do we do that? It seems like King David knew the answer to those questions in his own life, and so he begins this beautiful and magnificent psalm with a self-directed pep talk. Come on, soul. Come on, heart. Don't forget to bless God. Bless Him and His holy name rather than any other name. Bless Him. Him. Bless Him. And why? Why, O soul, should we? Should we bless Him? Should I bless Him? Well, because of all His incredible benefits. And that's it right there. It's this, it's this pep talk that then sets up the rest of the psalm. Uh, the end of verse 2, this word benefits, everything that follows after is him explaining and extolling and reminding himself and, and his original readers and reminding us just all the different ways in which the Lord has benefited us. But before we go there, before we, we journey through and look at the specificity of these benefits, let's deal just a little bit more with the phrase that's highlighted on the screen, forget not, forget not, forget not. Because I think we have to do that, right? Because we initially, this phrase hits us and we connect it to something a bit, a bit more like, I imagine, mental absent-mindedness, forget not. Oh, I'm so forgetful. Don't we say that? We mean mental absent-mindedness. It's the idea that, that it's easy to get distracted in our lives, which then does have the power to cause us to forget God and forget God's benefits. And I, I don't think this is wholly wrong. I've certainly seen this distracted dynamic play out in my own life, but let's dig a little deeper because you see in the initial immediate cultural moment of Psalm 103, knowing and forgetting, knowing and forgetting were not as much mental remembrance words, they were more relational words. To know and to forget is anchored in this idea of a relational connection. So what David is saying happens in his own life, and, and I think by extension in all of our lives, is that forgetting the benefits of the Lord is the tragic act of relationally rejecting God for the acceptance of self-centered, sinful pride. It's more like, I don't need you, God. I did all this. It's my life, my accomplishments, my money, my success, my redemption by way of my and good and better choices. In fact, God, who are you? God who? Right, that is more of this idea. It could be, I think on the surface, it's, it is something about how it's easy for us to get distracted, but at a deeper, more problematic and tragic level, forgetting the Lord and His benefits is about relationally rejecting Him, about pridefully rejecting Him, right? So we must not, in either one of these ways, forget not God and His benefits because, remember, redemption begins when we recognize how deeply and how much we need it. Redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it. So let's give our souls a pep talk this morning. Bless the Lord, O our souls, and let us not forget, either by way of mental absent-mindedness or prideful rejection of the relationship, let us not forget the Lord and His benefits. And this idea that redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it, it actually carries forward as we track deeper into the psalm. The end of verse 2 extols our souls not to forget God and His benefits. And then the beginning of verse 3, as you would expect, it names the first benefit that we shouldn't forget. Well, that seems important, doesn't it? 
If the rest of the psalm is about unpacking all of these benefits, what's number one? What's the first benefit that David thinks to name? We'll take another look. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And here's the first one. The Lord who forgives all your iniquity. Forgives all your iniquity. Iniquity. Iniquity is one of those words in the Bible that's used to describe our sin. Our rejection of and rebellion against God and His ways which I think brings us to this fascinating crossroads when it, when it comes to the reality of Psalm 103. Because it is one of the most beautiful and beloved psalms out of all of the 150 that we have to choose from, right? It's in like the top three, the top five. You've got Psalm 23, you've got Psalm 139, and you've got Psalm 103. I know people who this is their absolute most favorite psalm, and for good reason. It's beautiful and it is beloved, and yet, How deeply do we understand that a driving central component of this psalm is the problem of human sin? Do we see that? A driving central component to this psalm is the the reality of, the problem of, the tragedy of human sin. And listen, I know that it is not fun to sit in the muck and mire of our sin. It's not what I woke up this morning wanting to do, but Psalm 103 compels us that we must. And so we are, because redemption only begins when we recognize how much we need it. And friends, it's just too easy to forget, isn't it? Too easy to forget. Too easy to downplay the seriousness of the severity of our sin. And so just for a little bit longer, let's remember a bit more of humanity's capacity for sin. And and we're going to use Psalm 103, verses 6 and 7 as a launching pad. Carry forward further with me. Those verses read, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. Now immediately upon reading these verses, I'm transported. I'm transported actually into the middle of the book of Exodus. I'm transported immediately into the Sinai Desert alongside of the nation of Israel. Why? Well, I think verse 6 is a clear reference to God's miraculously and righteous deliverance of His people, of the nation of Israel, from the unjust oppression that they were suffering in slavery in Egypt. And then did you catch it in verse 7, right? Verse 7 explicitly names Moses, uh, God's chosen man to lead his people out of Egypt. And verse 7 names Moses and how he received God's, he received knowledge of God's ways, which is a direct reference, I believe, to God's revelation of himself to Moses and to his people in his holy law. These stories are captured for us originally in the book of Exodus. And one of the climactic moments in the flow of events that I think are being described here in Psalm 103 by David as he is remembering back upon them so that his own soul won't forget. One of the climactic moments is contained in three chapters near kind of the middle of the book of Exodus, Exodus 32, 33, and 34. And I spent some time in those chapters this week, and can I just encourage you to do the same? This week, spend time going back over each of those chapters one by one. They're worth revisiting in full. They really are. They are a stunning portrait, a stunning portrait of humanity's capacity for sin and God's capacity for mercy. In brief, what's happening in these chapters by way of reminder is that the people tire of Moses 
of waiting for Moses to return from receiving God's law. Do you remember this? And they demand instead that Aaron, Moses' brother, fashion for them, the text says, some gods who can lead them. You might say in this request, in this demand really, what they're doing is they are forgetting. That's a key word from Psalm 103, isn't it? They are forgetting Moses and God both together. And I think in that deeper sense of foolhardy relational rejection for the acceptance of prideful self-sufficiency. I don't think it was distraction because they had just literally months earlier been miraculously redeemed, rescued, and delivered from bondage in Egypt. This is mere months after their miraculous escape through the Red Sea as Pharaoh's army bared down upon them. They have not had time to mentally be absent-minded and forget. This is working at a deeper level of relational rejection, foolhardy relational rejection, the forgetting of both Moses and God. Because here they are saying, as for this Moses fellow, well, we don't know what's happened to him. So we need some leaders. So Aaron, fashion out of gold some, some leaders, some gods for us that can lead us. And here's God's deeply understandable response. Enter into the tragedy of this with me. Exodus 32, verses 7 through 9. And so the Lord said to Moses, Go down for, <laughs> for your people. Moms and dads, right? Have you ever had this happen? Your son, right, is doing this thing, right? It's like that's God, God's God in this moment. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel. This is who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And friends, no one here ought to think that I'm coming, coming down with shame and judgment against the people of Israel myself. No, 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 may it never be. For friends, I will be the first to raise my hand and say that stiff-necked is a pretty decent descriptor for one Paul Brandis. One who turns aside quickly. That hits a little close to home, if you know what I mean. Sure, yes, Exodus 32 is not Israel's finest moment. But are we much better? Are we much better? Or are we just as stiff-necked? Do we turn aside just as quickly? Redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it. So church, I have to ask, do you recognize how much you need it? Do you recognize how much you need redemption? Have you fully reckoned with the depth, the severity, the seriousness of your sin? It's not fun, but Psalm 103 compels us to do so. It is necessary. I mean, think back to where we started, Psalm 103, 4. I talked about how that verse speaks of the Lord redeeming us, but where does He redeem us from in Psalm 103? Look for, look back. He redeems us from the pit. He redeems us from the pit. That doesn't sound very fun, does it? And it's not. Digging into the original word behind our translation of the pit, it's a trap. It's a place of deep bondage and even destruction. The pit is a place that is all too easy for us to fall into. And friends, it is all too difficult and impossible for us to escape on our own. I mean, the pit is like quicksand. 
You try to pull yourself up out of quicksand by yourself, all you're going to do is dig deeper and deeper and deeper in. All you're going to do is sink deeper and deeper into the pit. It is from that place that the Lord redeems you, that the Lord redeems me. But you've got to recognize how bad and how deep and how tangled up and trapped you are within the pit. Redemption only begins when we recognize how much we need it. But that's not all. That's not all. No, go with me for a moment and see that also redemption continues when we surrender to the rescue of our Father. It begins when we recognize how much we need it, and it continues when we surrender to the rescue of our Father. Friends, I know there's been some bad news this morning, but fear not because Psalm 103 brings us great news, good news of great joy. Psalm 103 brings us good news of great joy. Yes, it is true that the tragedy and reality of human sin is the central driving component of Psalm 103. But as Ashley read it for us earlier, as we included part of it in our uh, call to worship, did you track along with what is always associated with the problem of human sin in this psalm? It's one of, human sin is one of the central driving components, but what is always right next to it in this psalm? Let's see. Take verse 3 again. David introduces the theme of human sin with the word inequity. Did you notice what God is doing with that iniquity? He is the one who forgives all your iniquity. He is the one who forgives it. He forgives the sin. He forgives the iniquity. He forgives the rejection, the rebellion, the misguided and bankrupt revolution. Yes, sin is there. Iniquity is there. But what else is? Forgiveness. Rescue. And the middle part of the psalm reinforces our point. Right, we have verses 6 and 7, which were the launching pad, which got us back to, to Exodus. But look at how David, so he has these, I think he has the Exodus account in mind when he is penning verses 6 and 7. But how does he continue with verses 8 through 10? Look again, verses 6, 7. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I think these verses, verses 8-10 through 10 of Psalm 103, are some of the most extraordinary verses in all of Scripture. Think about the Exodus context that is lurking in the background of these verses. And think about your own great and tragic sins in your own life for a moment. Like really do. Like really enter into whatever your worst moment is. Whatever you regret the most, that you would take back the fastest. I imagine the nation of Israel would put Exodus 32 pretty high on that list. And I know that we all have something that we're thinking of right now. And yet, and yet, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. I mean, I think about one of, some of my worst moments are as a parent. Some of the things that I regret the most, that I have the most shame about. And honestly, if I'm very, very vulnerable with you all for a moment, some of my worst moments that I regret the most are where I was quick to anger with my children. And yet here, 
and God's beautiful and significant self-revelation, what is true? And in spite of my quickness to anger, the Lord, our Father in heaven, is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Friends, Psalm 103 is about the tragedy and reality of human sin. But it is even more so about God's rescue of us from that sin. It's even more so about God's rescue of us from that sin. It is why this is such a beloved text. Yes, to understand it properly, we are forced to reckon with what we need to be rescued from, our sin. But just as the psalm does, we must also shout the glorious good news from the rooftops. Rescue is available. The pit, the trap, our sin, it does not have to be the end of the story. It doesn't have to be. Redemption continues when we surrender to the rescue of our Father. And I'm drawing, right, I'm drawing this word Father from the psalm. Did you catch that as Ashley read the text for us this morning? The reference to God as our Father comes in verse 13. It comes at the end of three verses that describe what God does with our sins so that we can be rescued from it. So allow these words to to wash over you. This middle section of Psalm 103 is just extraordinary. Verses 11 through 13, follow along. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove His transgressions, our transgressions from us. And verse 13, as a father, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Listen, church, we can't measure how much higher the heavens are above the earth. You can't pull out a calculator and punch in just how far the east is from the west, right? That number is infinity. It just keeps going and going and going. The point of verses 11 and 12 is to overwhelm us with the sheer size of God's love for us, His people. And the point of verses 11 and 12 is to drive fully home in the deepest way possible that when God rescues you from sin, He rescues you. I get It's gone. It is done. It is dealt with. That's verses 11 and 12. But verse 13 does something a little bit different, doesn't it? Verses 11 and 12, they're big. They're loud, right? They they kick in the door and they start yelling about all this. They're trying to give you a sense that they're vast. They want to raise your eyes up to the heavens. They want you to think about how far, like you have your brain break at how far the east is from the west, Right? But then verse 13 shifts the tone a little bit, doesn't it? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Do you see? Ethan's going to be two in just three weeks or so. December 28th is his birthday. And toddlers have the worst spatial awareness. I mean, this is is not true. They're tripping over everything all the time. And they fall down. And they cry. And what do I do as his father? I have quick and unrequired, right? He didn't have to do anything. He's got my compassion in that moment. And what am I doing? I'm scooping him up. I'm holding him close. 
I'm setting with him and making sure that he's okay. Like that's the image of verse 13. And compare that and contrast that to verses 11 and 12. Right? There's one scholar, I love this so much. There's one scholar who writes of these verses. He says, by verses 11 and 12, we are led out into a large place to walk in liberty. Isn't that what happens in verses 11 and 12? Like you're, in, you're in like the vastness of the universe. This is A, how much God loves you, and B, how far your sins are gone. And, and, and how can you not walk in liberty when that's true? So by verses 11 and 12, we are led out into this large place that overwhelms us so that we can walk in freedom. By verse 13, we are brought home. By verse 13, we are brought home to the Father. I mean, doesn't that just say it all? After that, our next step is nothing more than surrender. Surrender to the rescue of the Father. It is how our redemption continues. Surrender to the rescue of the Father. But if you've been following along closely so far, then there's, there's a little bit more that we have to touch on to resolve the tension of all of this. Because I think we've adequately covered, within the context of Psalm 103, the question of why it is that no one is unredeemable. That's where we started, right? We wanted to know, what. okay, no one's unredeemable, but why? Well, Psalm 103.8 gives a pretty good answer to that question. Why is no one unredeemable? The Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful unlike how we are not merciful. Why is no one unredeemable? The Lord is gracious. Why is no one unredeemable? The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is abounding in steadfast. That is the remarkable why. It is that no one is unredeemable. But what about the how? What about the how? How is God's rescue plan ultimately fulfilled? What is God's mechanism for the redemption of humanity from their sin? So let's remember again, right? Let's enter back into the middle part of this psalm one more time. Psalm 103.8, and you may know this, you may not. It's fascinatingly copied and pasted from the middle of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And those verses are at the end of the episode that we covered earlier. Israel's sinful golden calf, idol worship in the Sinai Desert. And I want us to revisit those verses in Exodus 34 in full just for a moment because they put such a fine point on the tension that we're exploring. This is the tension. How does God ultimately fulfill His rescue plan? How is it true that no one is unredeemable? In these verses, the Lord is remarkably humbling Himself. He's, this is His display of self-revelation to Moses. And follow along with these verses. These are incredibly significant verses within the whole of, of Scripture. Let's, let's revisit them now. Again, after the golden calf, right? It says, after that, this is what follows. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, does it sound familiar? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David is sitting somewhere and he is penning Psalm 103. And he finishes verse 6 and he finishes verse 7. He's like, yeah, you know what would be a really great inclusion right here? Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He will keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity. Sound familiar? Psalm 103.3. Forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin. This is the tension. Follow it with me. But who will by no means clear the guilty? 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And this highlighted clause lays bare the tension and it raises the question that we're trying to answer. How can God forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but then also not clear the guilty? How is it that both of these things can be true? And friends, the answer is found in Advent. The answer is found in Christmas. The answer is found in Jesus. Last week in Psalm 2, we discovered that God has anointed His Son as King, giving Him, the nations and rulers of the nations, as His ultimate heritage. But of course, as Luke 2 revealed, the coming of God's Son, the King of the universe, was an extraordinary reversal of expectations. Because this King Jesus by whom God the Father spoke the world into existence, well, he was born humbly to a virgin, an unwed teenager in the backwater town of Bethlehem. King Jesus, Lord of the universe, yes, but also now remarkably humble, remarkably vulnerable, remarkably low, as low and lowly as a crying baby who is in great and desperate need of his mother. And lower even than that, would King Jesus descend? For King Jesus did not just give up the trappings of of heaven to condescend to live on earth. No, so much more for God's rescue plan required a sacrificial death. God's rescue plan required a willing and perfect substitute who could then bear the transfer of the guilt of God's people, the iniquity, sin, and transgression of God's people, which, friends, is how it is true that no one is unredeemable. How did God ultimately fulfill His rescue plan? By laying our guilt, our sin, our iniquity, and our transgression upon the one who knew none of that. Upon Jesus, His King, slain on the cross for our rescue and redemption. You see, that's just it. God's Psalm 103 is ultimately about King Jesus' rescue. Psalm 103 is ultimately about the king's rescue. And so here's the final point, friends, briefly as we close. Redemption begins as we recognize, when we recognize how much we need it, and it continues when we surrender to God's rescue plan, which we now know that rescue plan hinges upon King Jesus. But carry forward with me. Redemption begins, redemption continues, and finally, redemption is completed when King Jesus will come back again. Redemption is completed when when King Jesus comes back again. What is true is that no one who comes in surrender to the Father by way of King Jesus is unredeemable. No one's unredeemable but that, that comes to the Father by way of King Jesus. But I do think we desperately need the reminder that even though those of us who are in King Jesus have been redeemed, we have been redeemed. What's also true is that we also right now are still being redeemed. And one day when King Jesus comes back, that is when, that is when we will be completely redeemed, fully redeemed, perfectly redeemed. Redemption is completed when King Jesus comes back again. We're celebrating the season of Advent during these weeks at church. And as Chance said earlier, Advent, it comes from a Latin word that means arrival. And in part, the season of Advent is about studying and reflecting upon the significance 
of King Jesus' first arrival, his first advent, when he was born in a barn in Bethlehem a little more than 2,000 years ago. That's part of what we get to do in Advent, but friends, the Advent season should also be equal part about waiting and with eager anticipation for his second coming, his second arrival, his second Advent, because you see, even after Jesus' first Advent, and even after his perfect life, death, and resurrection, the truth is that the world today, as we see it and live in it, as we experience it, and as we contribute it, the world is still a very broken place full of very broken people. And that includes those of us who follow Jesus. Our redemption today, here and now, December 4th, 2022, our redemption is already, we have been redeemed, and it is also yet to fully be completed. It's already and not yet. It's already and not yet. But on that day, on the day of Jesus' second advent, on the day of Jesus' second arrival, on that day, well, it's as we sing this time of year in the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. I love Joy to the World. And Joy to the World is actually thematically mostly about Jesus' second coming, which is very appropriate because, again, that is a big part of what we should be doing during this season is allowing Jesus' first advent to propel us forward to waiting well with eager anticipation of His second advent. And on that day, when King Jesus returns to complete the rescue, to complete the redemption, it will be as this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. For He, our King, King Jesus, He comes to make His blessings flow. Could we say He comes to make His benefits flow? He comes to make His blessings flow, His benefits flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Friends, no one is unredeemable because God made a way. Redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it. It continues when we surrender to the rescue of the Father, and it is completed when King Jesus comes back again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth contained within this extraordinary psalm, the reminder that we need, Lord, that yes, our sin puts us into the pit, rightly so. We have pridefully forgotten you and rejected the relationship with you that we were designed for, but we don't have to stay in that pit, Lord. So help us to recognize how much we need your redemption. Help us to surrender, surrender to your rescue, Father, centered in Christ Jesus. Thank you for him. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, may he come back. In that day, all wrongs will be made right. And Jesus, we, your blessing will go as far as the curse is found. So we pray for Jesus to come back, and we ask that we would wait well, both in this season of Advent and beyond, for Jesus' second coming. We ask all this in His name. Amen.